0: Hello, lovely people, and welcome to what is the last ever episode of Handcut Radio. Yes, after three years and more than 50 episodes, we're hanging up our microphones to pursue projects anew. But before we go, we wanted to respond to one frequent request that's come up while we've made this podcast. A surprising number of you have been in touch to ask whether someone could possibly interview me, and now they have. For this special sign-off episode, we asked Paul Croughton, Editor-in-Chief of The Rob Report, to quiz me on what we've learned in speaking with so many fascinating and successful people. A huge thank you to Paul, from the whole team here, for taking some time out to record this finale episode. We very much hope you enjoy. So, Alex. Hello. How are you? (laughs) I'm alright, feeling marginally uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so this is a new experience for you. It is. It is. It's exciting, though. Thank you for doing this, I should say, pleasure. first of all.
1: A great pleasure. So today we've, we've flipped the script and turned the tables and other boring metaphors. Um, and you very kindly asked me to ask you a few questions. Yes. Uh, so that's what I shall try and do over the next, uh, next little while. Um, and we both put out a request for questions on our Instagram, and we got... Got a few, and fortunately, quite a few of those were very similar to my line of travel. A few weren't um, <laughs> I think we'll leave the one about underpants alone <laughs> um, but um let's let's tick in and let's see where we get to exciting um because i'm I'm intrigued about where, over the course of the last six series, your opinions might have changed or evolved or or radically kind of altered from where you kind of began mm. um, and I'm also obviously curious what you've learned
0: over the last
1: three years I think it is since you've been doing this
0: yeah I think it's actually I think it's four I might be wrong I know it is three I keep doing that with my own. I keep thinking I've been freelancing for four years it's actually only been three 2019 believe yes. the first one was you're right you're right um, I, uh, I the joy of this project is I have learned so much from every almost every conversation you pick something up and it informs your kind of worldview on style. I've learned a huge amount. Um, and it's made I think it's made me much more open and much more kind of mature in how I think about these things just generally. I think something that comes up every now and then on the podcast is when I started this with James... I don't know how old I was, but I was significantly younger. I had I had just gone freelance, so I didn't have a clue what I was doing, and I was so sort of set on I only do style, I don't do fashion. Fashion is the enemy. Uh, you know, if if it's not well made, there's no place for it. Quality, quality, quality. We almost wear ties all the time. I was in. I was still. I think really in peak hashtag menswear Alex mode. And actually having conversations with a lot of influential individuals who are much further down the path of kind of self-development and self-discovery in terms of clothes has really allowed me to see that there is a place for both fashion and style. That. You don't have to play by the rules. In fact, you know, I went into the podcast thinking the rules are gospel, and I've come out of the podcast thinking I couldn't give a monkey's about any rules whatsoever, and I don't think any kind of rule should apply. Mm. So I've done a complete 180 okay, there. Well,
1: that's interesting. Well, let's so let's start off with um, some of the good things. I mean, the, the changing of your opinions around the rules. Um, some people will think that's wonderful. I'm sure there'll be some people listening there saying you cannot. Deny the rules. The rules are important. Mm. So, talk to me about some of the good things
0: that you've gained from the last three years. It is uh, an understanding that there's a place for both fashion and style, and understanding that there's nothing less cool than trying to be cool. That was quite an important lesson. Um, and actually, I know we, we, we've spoken about this before, but actually, I remember feeling. <laughs> I only really feel that I've figured out that in the last maybe 18 months or so. And, and actually, for, probably for the majority of the podcast's lifetime, I've still had a part of my brain that's trying, quote-unquote, trying to be cool or trying to align myself with a certain a way of approaching clothes or, a certain, or trying to understand different parts of menswear that actually probably I'm not, if I'm being completely honest with myself, totally interested in. Like, I've accepted I'm not a workwear guy. For the last couple of years, I've played around with workwear, but I'm not a workwear guy. I'm a tweed jacket and jeans guy, and I think I always will be. I think that's where I've landed.
1: But that's okay to play around and discover that, though. That's not a negative, is it? No,
0: it? it's not a negative, but but it's almost like in producing the podcast, I've given myself permission to figure out who I am. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. And a pro- I, I hope it's a process that a lot of listeners have gone through or are going through as well. Because the, the vast majority of our guests, if you think about guys like Gauthier Sorello or Ethan Newton, they figured out who they were a long time ago and they've just got comfortable with it and lent into it. Um, and some, you know, for example, you know, I think when Ethan wears Western wear, it's completely authentic to him. But I've tried a bit of Western wear, tried it, didn't really feel like me as an Englishman and as quite a tweedy Englishman <laughs> and then sort of came back out of it and went all right I can dip into that every now and then so learning to dip in and out of things is a real positive and understanding that you can dip in and out of things another big learning that I think has been super important is the is is the value of context and I think we might come onto this at some point as well but the Alex of three and a bit years ago well maybe not a three and a bit years ago but r- really over the last five years since I left the Rake magazine and I left a comfort zone of sort of suit and tie wearing I've been slowly learning that while clothes are there for you to feel totally comfortable and to express yourself I personally think now you can only be truly comfortable if you also have some kind of understanding of the context that you're moving through So if we talk about 23-year-old Alex, he was dressing like Al Capone. And there were some contexts where that was kind of acceptable. Uh, But the vast majority of contexts, you stick out like a sore thumb. And on some level, I think you know you stick out like a sore thumb. I certainly did. And I've learned over the years that actually, to be truly comfortable with your sense of style, you should keep one eye on what the room's doing. And actually, I had a catch-up with Andre... Lanyo last week and he said something that was brilliant he said something like the best way to dress for me is to have a little bit of uniqueness while also fitting in and that's much more where I hope my sense of style has gone actually Mm -hmm. and that I'm a much more comfortable figure within my peers and when I'm presented to other journalists at a dinner or a press day or something I don't want to stick out I don't want to be seen as the weird freelancer over there You know, so that's that's been another positive for me. Is that's
1: that's interesting because I've I realised I've known you for six years or so. Yeah. And when I met you, you were certainly in what you call your full Capone (laughs) regalia. Yeah. But I think you need to give yourself a wee bit of a break. In that you were, without sounding condescending, you were in your early twenties, and I think it takes all of us to varying degrees a good chunk of time to figure out what you've figured out pretty quickly, actually. Um, So, and I get the sense that you're, where you are now with how you dress and how you feel about how you dress, you're probably pretty comfortable and pretty stable. And you may stay that way for 20 years. You may not. But I think that's, you've probably got there quicker than an awful lot of other people.
0: Maybe. But again, I wouldn't have got there if it hadn't been for the podcast. No way. I probably would still be searching for some direction as opposed to settling into where I've got to and actually sort of realising someone said in fact it was Lee, Lee Reckert of Taylor said to me a couple of weeks ago well tweed jackets are just your thing aren't they and I hadn't actually realised they're my thing <laughs> but I think they have sort of accidentally become my thing but it, it actually took it even just you know all these years later it took Lee it just took a friend saying that for me to actually realise oh yeah actually maybe tweed jackets are just my thing and I'm okay with that
1: There's that nice thing about uh, judge someone not by what they say but by what they do. And you keep commissioning tweed jackets, my friend. So, (laughs) tweed jackets are indeed your thing. So it would seem. Um, Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, And in looking and doing a bit of research for this conversation, I listened to a few of the podcasts and you mentioned uh, Mr. Borsarello Mm. and I noted one line that he said which I thought was rather nice, which was that and I'm slightly paraphrasing, but he said, people look for style their whole lives and when they stop looking for it, they find it, but what they find is elegance.
0: God, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that clever? That's so great. Um,
1: and I think that struck me quite a lot um, because I think it's quite common for people to look for something, to, whether it's a look or whether it's something that defines them. Um, and people get to a different point or they get to the point where they
0: don't care so much at very different points in their lives. And perhaps that's what you're saying. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe I am approaching that point. I'm certainly second-guessing myself a lot less, which I think is healthy. And I have just, I literally, in the last, like, three weeks, I've reached a place where I have gone, I need to stop trying to be into things that I'm not really into. It's funny how we're recording this at a time when all these cogs are wearing in my brain. Maybe it's because the podcast is wrapping up now maybe that's a part of why I'm sort of reprocessing a lot of this stuff but just in the last three weeks I've kind of gone Do you know what I'm into this this and this and actually that's okay and that's my own personal definition of cool and that's all I need I don't need to conform to some external idea of cool that you know uh, I don't know what will give me a good example but you know that we all have to wear I don't know Fatigues for the next three months because fatigue or three years because fatigues have just become a big thing. You know, I'm just learning actually to just tread my own path a bit more. But that line from Gauthier is incredible. Mm. I need to go back and listen to that on the basis of that line.
1: I just thought as we were talking of something that you said to me a number of years ago, which we were talking about pity and the faff of getting dressed every morning for pity yeah. or for Milan fashion shows or whatever, and you said that you had made a note of every outfit you had worn of the last like four years and you had it in your notes and so that you always had this backup and i remember at the time thinking i can't tell whether that's genius or bonkers <laughs> I, i'm not able to do that and i'm not i'm you know i don't put my clothes together with the Alan that you do but at the same
0: time i still don't know if that's genius or bonkers do you still do that well, that that's just triggered a really interesting thought for me, which is that I still have a so I, until maybe eighteen months ago, really pand- pandemic times. I every Monday to Friday, I have Monday to fr- I have this week's outfits as a note in my phone, and it has Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I don't do the weekends, and it will have I'm going to see so and so here, or I'm going for lunch here, so I'm going to wear this. And I used to plan the whole week. And I would do the same thing for fashion shows or fashion weeks. And I'd I'd know what I was wearing on a given day. I don't do that anymore. And actually that note, there may be, for example, if I've got like a new business pitch for James, that day I'll make a note and I'll say, right, I need to hit this tonally. This is the context I'm going to be in. I'm going to be pitching a smart brand. I need to wear a suit and a crew neck or a suit and a roll neck. And I'll make a note and I'll decide what I'm going to wear in advance so that I don't stress on the day. But actually, I don't do that anymore. And maybe that suggests to your earlier point that actually I am getting more comfortable, that I don't need to embark on this, this ritual of dressing up or, or, or sort of dressing in a performative way Monday through to Friday that's really interesting i feel like i'm being psychoanalyzed as we do this but that is really interesting
1: <laughs> well, I just, my um i've just remember talking about that my, my mother used to keep a note of all the recipes that she cooked for dinner parties so that she wouldn't cook the same thing for the same people when they came that's great and then she also i think made a note of what she wore so she wouldn't you know the next time six months later when someone turns up she wouldn't wear the red dress and serve apple pie. Did you ever use your list like that? Did you ever think, right, I'm going to see Edward Sexton, I need to make sure I don't wear the same suit for the last No, but, uh, but
0: the way I would use it would be, okay, I've got a meeting with Turnbull and Assis today, or on Wednesday, I must wear a Turnbull and Assis shirt. Right. Or, if I'm going to see Edward, I better not turn up wearing someone else's gear. Sure. So I sort of would do the reverse of that. Okay. Um,
1: so let's, we've done the good... Yeah, and we've kind of scuttled around some of the bad while we do it. But let's focus on on the more negative things about the men's style community that you might have observed in the last three years. Where does that thought take
0: you? Oh, really interesting. I mean, the the, the, the performative nature of getting dressed, I think, is problematic. And I have to this point, I, I, I've really realised that it's not. It's not it, getting dressed should not be performative. Um, and I've said at various points in, over the podcast, the clothes are just for the man who wears the clothes. And actually, as we really wrap this project up, I'm not sure I entirely believe that anymore. But we'll put a pin in that for a minute. Because where my brain was going was the thing that's doing my head in at the moment. And it really did my head in. And I think a lot of other people's heads in all the way through lockdowns, because it was so obvious, was this idea that if you put... Uh, an expensive suit and a tie and some NAF correspondent shoes on and a tie pin, you are a gentleman. and the, Or if by wandering around a certain part of town dressed in a certain way, you are a gentleman. Or you're a gentleman because you own five cars and a manor house and a stupid watch collection. Um, that re- I, I find that so offensive today. I, I always did, but even more so over the last three years. Mm. And I don't understand that sort of subculture within the subculture that is menswear that that identifies like that i think it's so mistaken to to be quote unquote a gentleman is it's a value system it's a way of behaving that is important to you internally it is again it's not something that's performative and it's not something remotely connected to clothing you're not a gentleman because you wear a suit and tie you're a gentleman because you behave in a certain way and you probably don't think consciously oh i'm going to hold open this door for this damsel in distress because i am a gentleman it that does my head in
1: it's peculiar where that comes from isn't it because we've mentioned it already but al capone was very well put together and, and gentlemen of that era um and they probably did open a lot of doors back then but they also quite like cutting people up and and (laughs) other things that you would think are less gentlemanly now. Um, So I wonder where that has, you know, how we have subsequently extrapolated that somebody in a three-piece suit and a, a dimpled tie is somehow nicer to his fellow men than someone who...
0: There's got to there's be not... a, a fashion and psychology student out there s- studying this. I, there's, this is there's a hundred percent of doctorate in this somewhere, isn't there? The psychology of how that's happened. My own, I, it, it's difficult for me because because I I am in the grand scheme of things young. I sort of started going to pity at when would that have been? I think my first pity would have been 2012. So. Hashtag menswear and the sort of Tumblr years of hashtag menswear had already been and gone by the time I was a whippersnapper on the scene wandering around in my pink linen suit. Um, but there was that almost 10 year period before I sort of entered the working world where we all just went mad for everyone wanted to sort of look like Cary Grant in a Neapolitan suit, and I I'm still not sure where that came from as a sort of a a, a collective phenomenon but it, it is 100% it was it has to have been a reaction to something and I don't really know what people were reacting against at that moment in time but I think somehow we all just felt the need to watch an old black and white film and then go oh I want to I want to be like that I I want to I want to have this sort of antiquated value system and with that comes a suit and a tie i don't know it's a really interesting one Mm. what's your theory do you have a theory
1: i don't i not as such i can only really base it on my own experience which is that i grew up with my father putting on a suit and going to work every day and i very i was going to say consciously that's probably the wrong word but actively didn't want that for myself. So for my first probably, certainly decade in journalism, I never, in quotes, had to wear tailoring because I worked at men's style magazines or consumer magazines or whatever. So I wore, and I also was at a different stage in life. So I collected trainers and I had um, you know, a ridiculous amount of trainers and I would wear jeans or combat trousers back in the day um, and trainers and whatever. Mm. And then, as I got older, I've found my way into tailoring far more, and but in a different way to how my father would wear it. And he would only ever buy his suits from Marks and Spencers. You know, he wasn't into tailoring. Well, he was into tailoring, but he wasn't into spending lots of money on tailoring or yeah. finding the need to get them made or whatever. Um, but he was a gentleman. Remains a gentleman in that kind of sense. But I don't think I ever associated those two together.
0: No. no I, that,
1: there's, there's no theory. That was just nonsense.
0: But it does make the point that it's it somehow it's artificially happened at some point in the last, I, let's say, 20 years. Because that's just got me thinking about my grandfather or my uncle, who is now sort of the, the, the pus familius of the Svekiewicz clan, um, you know they've we've always known them for being impeccably dressed, and my and my grandfather was in his own way. And again, he was a Marks and Spencer's man. You know, he was a, he was a, he was a barman in Leicester in the sixties, seventies. But um, that it wasn't a, you didn't you, you didn't you didn't grow up thinking, oh, my grandfather's such a gentleman, did you? You just grew up thinking, I love my grandfather. He's a great bloke, and he dresses smart. So how there has been there was a, there must have been a moment in time. There's got to be someone I can talk to about this. Someone who was on the scene went before me who who witnessed the sort of weird Tumblr years where we all just went, we all have to wear Paisley and we all have to wear a tie pin and we all have to wear a waistcoat.
1: Do you think it's... It, the influence has come from outside of the UK? Because I, I wonder maybe. whether it's an American manifestation of an... Old
0: English style, or...? Uh, th- there's something in that. I actually think whether... I wonder whether it's an Italian thing. Because if I think back to the... If you think about the OG Pity Peacocks who were all knocking about back then, they were all rich Italian blokes who wanted to wear suits for fun on the weekends or, or around Pity, and they were all the ones wandering around with their second strap buckle undone and all that nonsense. Hmm. That's where it originated, I think. Maybe Maybe it's sort of that Italian view... Because then if we go back another level, you know, Ruben Archer used to be called London House in the 30s because all those sort of Neapolitan tailors obsessed over sort of importing their own version of the London look and using English cloth in an Italian way. Mm. Maybe that's, there's something in there. There's got to be, if there is, if there is a fashion master student listening to this, you've got your dissertation right there.
1: Answers uh, in the messages beneath the, uh, you know, on Instagram, please. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I that's fascinating. All
1: right, a shorter question. Who do you do this podcast for?
0: <laughs> the honest answer was when I, I think quite honestly, when we launched this, I was doing it for myself. Uh, without wanting to sound hopelessly selfish. But what I mean by that was I, I wanted a project that kept me relevant as a new freelancer because I'd seen friends and colleagues go freelance before me and sort of fade into oblivion and never, never get any work again. And I wanted a sort of a reason to still be in the room. And I didn't really know who the audience was when we launched it. I think we were just sort of following our guts on who are 10 guys that we rate in the industry that we could have a bit of a chat with and just see where this thing goes. And we didn't really have a plan when we launched it. Uh, James is shaking his head. (laughs) We didn't really have a plan at all. But as the podcast has developed, I like to think that the audience is a young, quote-unquote, progressive guy who's into style but is not... Um, prescriptive about style. And I I really, really hope that my work, more broadly as a journalist, is not for prescriptive or narrow-minded readers. Actually, I know it's not because some of my FT stuff gets terrible reader feedback uh, in the online comment sections. But um, I, I, I I think what the podcast has been good at is just hopefully showing open perspectives and opening guys brains to thinking about clothes in new and different ways not in a not necessarily in a again in a fashion way but i don't i'm not a stitch counter i was when i was younger but i haven't been for years i'm not into the idea of uniform i'm not into the idea of you having to dress in a certain way because there are conventions or rules or um again prescriptions I'd like to think that this podcast and my work more broadly is for guys who are into style but questioning, open-minded, curious, progressive, open to trying new things. Not who aren't gonna, who don't judge people in the street for dressing a certain way basically.
1: So it's not it wasn't done to begin with for the menswear community. No.
0: But I guess if I am a part of a community, I am a part of the menswear community. So it's it's sort of gravitated in that direction, almost re- really quite uh, unintentionally, actually. And also just my own personal area of an interest over the last however many years, three, four years. You know, I'd always... I, it's funny because I feel like I'm reaching a point in my career where I'd almost rather go and talk to the designer than the tailor because I've been talking to the quote unquote tailor for five, six, seven years now. And I've learned almost everything I think I need to learn as a journalist about that world. And actually part of the reason why this podcast is wrapping up now is I want to go and explore different worlds. But for the last three or four years while the podcast has been a thing, I've certainly been in a place where I'd much rather go and speak to the independent, the craftsperson, the artisan, than the big, you know, big machine in the other direction. Um, so that, yeah, the podcast has just gravitated that way, I think.
1: Okay. Um, you mentioned this earlier, but fashion versus style. Mm. It used to be quite black and white mm. for uh, for people of a certain sort of style disposition, which is already kind of influencing the jury, um, in the... Style was uh, forever, fashion is fleeting. I get the sense that that's not your thinking anymore
0: yeah i th- I think I think you're correct i I still hold to that basic idea that when once you've found your style and it, and it, and you've authentically got to a place where you're truly comfortable in yourself then your your aesthetic or your wardrobe will stand the test of time. I still believe in that. But where I've reached myself is I've reached an understanding that actually fashion and style can cohabit comfortably, or style brands and fashion brands can both play a part in one individual's wardrobe, or it's okay to be interested in both. And I think an example that came up in season six was, uh, you know, I... Maybe on the Monday, when I'm sat here in a smart environment with one of my editors, I want to wear an Edward Sexton jacket and cords. But on the Tuesday, if I'm bowling around Hackney, I just want to be in a Bodie bowling shirt and bonkers embroidered trousers. And you've got the style on the Monday and the fashion on the Tuesday, but actually they're both... Because I've reached a point where I'm truly interested and comfortable in both those things, they're both authentic to me and therefore they both have a place in my wardrobe and actually I would encourage listeners to try and think on those terms it's it's okay to be interested in uh Henry Poole and Zenya. they can both have a place in your life and your wardrobe and one is not better than the other they are just different
1: and just for clarification you're talking about the very much the Xenia of now in terms of what
0: they're doing rather than Xenia as a kind
1: of Traditional Italian tailoring. House.
0: Yeah, exactly. Very much, uh, yeah. So I'm talking about sort of the big oversized drapey bomber jackets and the mad pleated trousers and the technical fabrics and things like that. Or, you know, Fear of God's another example, right? Like Fear of God seems to be one of those brands that uh, is, it's very much a high fashion brand and it's grounded in streetwear and everything that Jerry Lorenzo knows. But actually a lot of menswear guys seem to be quite interested in it because it's tonal, it features tailoring, it features basics really well and sweatpants and so on it's almost like the menswear community can't quite figure out brands like fear of god like they're sort of sizing it up trying to figure it out but actually it's okay to do that and it is interesting mm-hmm. and yes i would wear a fear of god california blazer because i think just think they're a really really cool piece of tailoring but i'm not going to wear that with a sweatsuit underneath i'm going to wear it in my way and that's probably with a nice piece of john smedley knitwear underneath and maybe some vintage levi's or something does that make sense? You know, I, I think I, I don't, I just don't. I think you close yourself off to opportunities when you write off whole parts of the fashion industry. And one of the things that I, I would like to mention briefly, because it's stayed with me ever since it happened, is I had the rare opportunity for a freelancer in my position of writing a little show review for one of Virgil Abloh's last collections at Louis Vuitton, and someone called me out on it and said, "I do not understand this, Alex." This, is, this whole collection is nonsense, are you for real? And it was quite an offensive message. And I, it has always irritated me because it betrayed a fundamental misunderstanding of what Virgil Abloh was trying to do. And it also betrayed an unwillingness to try and understand what Virgil Abloh is trying to do. You can look at Vuitton and think it's mental, but the next thing you should think, if you're really into clothes, is what is, the, what is that brand trying to say and do? It's very easy to be sceptical about it and say, oh, it's just a commercial money-making machine and it's just for the Chinese market, which partially it is, but there is still an artistic endeavour and an artistic idea that underpins those clothes. They might not be for you, but you should at least try and understand what that idea is. Does that make sense? I hate the way that menswear can be so closed about that Mm. and just go, oh, it's not safe and conventional, it's not a jacket and trousers, therefore it's stupid. It's not stupid, it's just different.
1: Yes, and different has often been seen in the menswear world and in the world as dangerous and and uncomfortable and, you know, uncertain and all of those things. Um, And you would hope that now we're in a slightly more accommodating and generous place that we can Mm. look at something with a bit more heart and say it might not be what I would wear or do or read or say or listen to but I wonder if it could be or I wonder why that
0: is and let me explore that a little more yeah your point about discomfort is really interesting because another quote that's always stayed with me was when we sat down with Scott Fraser Simpson for the first time and I always think Scott is the most brilliant style chameleon he is he's got a natural ability to try different things and for them to just look like they were meant for him but he said to us whenever it was, I think it was something like season four, yeah, it was season four, he said, there's actually, every once in a while, as long as you're not doing it all the time, there's something quite nice about leaving the house slightly uncomfortable and thinking, oh, I didn't quite nail that today, but I'm figuring it out. I think that's a really healthy place to be with your wardrobe. And there are days when I leave the house and I think, oh, I shouldn't have done this, I'm going to be irritated all day that this shirt wasn't the right shirt, or I should have worn another one, or whatever, but if you don't do it, you don't grow. And your sense of style doesn't grow. And I'm not saying that everyone should immediately run out and buy a Louis Vuitton coat. But I'm saying maybe you want to look at it and maybe in two or three years' time you might see that there's a place for it. You never know.
1: It's funny. Like, so many of these things, you, these are learned behaviours. Mm. So my son is four and a half and he will get up one day and want to dress like a unicorn. And another day he wants to dress like Batman. Yeah. That's cool. And they're both great, yeah. Yeah, why not? And, you know, he will wear completely bonkers things and and then the next day he'll just want to wear a pair of jeans and a blue hoodie mm. and look like, a, you know, any other little kid yeah. running around a playground. Um, and obviously at some point we understand what it is to be laughed at or to be uncomfortable or to be mocked or, you know, all these things. Um, but it would be nice to think that as we come out the other side of that, as almost fully-fledged human beings, we can say, well, I can live with that.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think that there's so much in there that's really interesting. The first, My my own sort of anecdote on that was at the weekend I was talking to some friends um, who are about to have a little baby, and um, they've bought uh, all their baby stuff is pink, and they don't know what, what gender baby they're having yet because they've just said... I, we can't abide this idea that it's either blue or pink. Like, we're going pink because pink's great. And if, and if it's a little baby boy, he'll look great in pink. And I think generationally we're seeing these subtle shifts in these traditional ideas that boys and girls have to do or present in a certain way, which I think is really healthy. What we're starting to see with Gen Z that I think is super exciting is an, a, a new, young, fiercely creative generation coming through that doesn't ask for permission that just has its own very fluid sense of identity, its own kind of take on gender and sexuality and, and anything to do with identity that's really exciting. But they're just getting on and creating. And Jeremy Langmead said when we interviewed him, Gen Z is the first generation that doesn't ask permission, they just create. And he's absolutely right. And I'm really excited about that. And one hopes that that trend will continue. And by the time that your son is... 18 or 20 he will have such a kind of open welcoming you know secure creative understanding of his sense of self that he will be able to do whatever the hell he wants and uh, be however he wants to be and I think that's again that's that for me is human progress Mm.
1: Uh, one of the kind of not that it's an elephant in the room but something we cannot ignore when we're talking about style and uh, how men dress is the last two years and mm. how that has um, influenced you and the people who have been on the pod in the last couple of years. Are you dressing differently now than you were uh, two years ago? And I guess we've all slightly touched on that answer, but do you think it's because of this need for comfort? And secondly, are you, are you part of this wave we're being told about that really wants to dress up loads there's two kind of ways of men's thinking apparently that it's
0: yeah it does it we do seem to i think fashion journalists have sort of created this polarized we're either one side or Mm. all the other haven't we i i stand by everything i've said over the last couple of years i think we're starting to see i'm starting to see that i've proven right so my own personal belief is that two things are happening at once um formal wear as a uniform is, in my own personal view, really on its uppers. I'm not going to say dead because that's too extreme. But I don't think... I don't think, I think the working world has fundamentally shifted. The way that we think about commuting, offices, work-life balance, that's all, for me, permanently shifted. I don't think we're going to go back to five days a week, and I don't think we're all going to go back to commuting in the same way. So the need for tailoring formal wear that's a uniform is at a a, a real low point. And I think those we're seeing those middle market businesses like TM Lewin, for example, that's just gone into administration again, are really struggling because their core customer base has just evaporated in the space of two years because you don't need a sort of uninspired business suit for work anymore. And everyone wants to be comfortable and stay at home and everyone's moved out to Shropshire or whatever. But... What's also happening on the flip side of that, and this is what's happening in my own wardrobe, is if I'm a little bit less dressed up day to day, I am really enjoying. And this is the bit that I, I didn't see coming really in quite the same way at the start of the pandemic, if I'm being honest. Um, I'm really enjoying dressing up on my own terms in my own time. So I'm the smartest I've ever been if I'm going out to a restaurant, for example. And I'm, I actually have got back to a place where I'm putting on not just a jacket and trousers, but a suit to go out to dinner. And not to necessarily particularly smart restaurants, but just because that is the kind of occasion in my life now where I can enjoy those clothes. Um, and I think... evening wears had this real renaissance over the last kind of winter and award season. Everyone's been getting into it, seemingly. Black tie weddings are apparently more popular than they've ever been. Um, so I think we are seeing a new exciting opportunity for tailoring, but it, it, it's, again, it's, it's great because tailoring is becoming about self-expression in your own time now, not the drudgery of a uniform. And I think that's a real opportunity for kind of smart brands, tailoring brands, but they've got to understand that. I, don't, I really don't think there's any point in in trying to dress someone for work anymore does that make sense so those two things have kind of happened at once we've all got more comfortable in our nine to five every day and we're all in our nice comfy knitwear and our jeans but when we're going out 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 we are uh, we're enjoying dressing up again and, and being a bit more creative and a bit braver with it those are the two things i'm picking up on
1: i had a so i've been in new york for most of the last four years and when lockdown happened there two years ago it was very lockdown and I had about a day and a half possibly two days of wearing you know pyjamas and tracksuits and tracksuit sweatpants um, but then I realised that I couldn't really do my job doing that so I it was in the summer so I started putting on linen trousers and I would put on a pair of you know, soft loafers or something just to sit at a desk in my apartment in New York and do my job because that made me feel like I was still attached to what my job was mm. or what my role was. But I also think that was, that's partly me. I quite like getting dressed and, and I'm interested in clothes and I wouldn't have felt comfortable just in sweatpants for two years. Mm. Um, so I think there's and I'm seeing it myself in other people, as you say, that there is a, a a willingness, not so much a willingness but a real desire to get dressed again to to kind of put on something cool and it doesn't have to be a you know in, in yours in my case, it might be a suit or a sports coat or something, but for others, it'll be something you know that they've barely got out of their wardrobe, but it might just be a really cool, really nice overshirt cool or something or, yeah, absolutely yeah. Um, and to use those pieces to go down the shops and get some milk, mm. because they make you feel a certain way. Mm. Um, and I think that's exciting again, because it's, if anything, it's made us fall in love again with
0: getting dressed and the kind of the, the best things in our wardrobe. Yeah, whatever they might be. I completely agree. I think that the, the not seeing tailoring as a uniform is such a healthy culture shift in our society. You know, the, 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 the scourge of every style writer's life for the last 10 years has been the two-button navy TM Lewin suit. And that doesn't exist anymore. And that gives all those guys who've been locked into that in the city or in their law firm or in their accountancy firm or in, on Wall Street, it gives those guys the opportunity to rediscover those garments again, but on their own terms. And actually maybe express themselves a little bit with those garments, which is the, the mm. critical shift for me some of these smarter pieces that we've not really been able to enjoy for two years you can use now as as a form of self-expression and that's really exciting that that can only be a good thing
1: so to go back to something you said a little bit ago about brands Mm. um changing slightly the way they are operating in the last couple of years or looking at things differently um From a brand point of view, and I don't necessarily want you to name specific names, but who has come out, what type of brand has come out of this last period well? What are they doing better than
0: others or better than they were? really, really interesting question. I think the first thing I'd say is, despite the conversation we've just had for the last five minutes, it's not about product. Um, There are Tailoring brands that have done really, really well because they've understood that tailoring is now a lifestyle proposition, and there are streetwear brands who've done really, really well because they've nailed that kind of high-low, high-low look that's been very relevant to all of our all our lives for the last two to three years. The thing that makes a brand really work today, I think, is an understanding of community, and um, those brands that have been creatively disruptive and have tried to speak to the consumer very, very clearly with a very clear, honest point of view are the brands that have done really well. And I think a, a perfect example that I think a lot of menswear heads will get is Amy Leondor, um, that's obviously just had a healthy chunk um, uh, of investment from LVMH as a result of absolutely killing it for the last two, three years. But they know exactly who their customer is. They put people before product. That You know, that they're... they're brand promise of of dressing the world 's borough is one of the smartest lines in fashion right now. I think it it speaks to who they are and, and what they 're trying to do so brilliantly um, and they 've made a brand that 's just about cool people community comfort self expression positivity. they play with craft in very very interesting ways because they 'll you know they 'll put up a five and a half minute uh, IGTV film of of a little guy on a Greek island throwing a pot and you'll be hooked on this five and a half minutes of creative endeavour and then they'll go and design and, and re- restore a vintage Porsche and then they'll show you five different ways to wear a sports coat that you've never ever thought about because they're throwing sweatpants at it or they're throwing crazy cargoes at it or they're layering it with loads of jersey I think they just understand how to speak to people. Uh, And that's what's what's worked for the last two to three years, is the brands that have understood how to connect with consumers, for me. And I'm trying to think of another example that can kind of hold a candle to that. But it's about understanding your tribe and what they're thinking and feeling and doing at any given moment in time. And it's something that came up... uh, Something that came up in a piece of work that James and I did recently which frustratingly isn't going anywhere is we've, I think it's still worth brands remembering that a lot of us have been quite scared for the last two or three years, we've been scared about losing our jobs, we've been scared about losing loved ones, we've been scared about our health, we've been scared to leave the front door at certain moments in time what consumers need right now are brands that uplift, that inspire, that show empathy that demonstrate that they are there for you to make your life just a little bit better in one easy way. And again, a brand like Amy d'Or has done that superbly for the last two and a half years. And actually, a lot of British brands haven't. I'm not in love with London right now. I think we're losing out in the creativity stakes for me personally. I think American brands and Parisian brands are still sweeping the floor with us in terms of how they the, 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 the responses they provoke from consumers um what are they
1: doing differently
0: well it's all those things they're showing empathy or they're showing leadership or they're they very clearly understood that the, the the problem we've got right now in the uk is and i hate to i feel like i go on about this a lot at the moment <laughs> but i do also feel like no one's really listening is we we, we lean far too much on the fact that we are all we all our brands have been around for 200 years uh, and it's not about that anymore. I am, f- for the, I've spent the first near enough 10 years of my career obsessing over old brands, but I don't obsess over them because they're old anymore. I only obsess over them when they're really good at what they do and they solve a problem for the consumer. And we're not, it, British brands are not doing that right now. They're not speaking to the new gener- the next generation of luxury consumers that's coming through. They're trying to hold on to the generation that's going out, which is the wrong thing to do. Um, and they're struggling to demonstrate that kind of connect they're not connecting with with a community they're not thinking about how to speak to the 35 year old that's that's coming through that's going to be their customer for the next 30 40 years they're not empathizing they're not solving problems and a lot of british brands are in danger i think still in danger even though things are now getting back to normal of not not being brave enough to become relevant for the next five or ten years whereas in New York you're not shackled by 200 years you don't feel like you're speaking to a 65 year old consumer you, you, you are going after the 35 the year old high flyer with money mm-hmm. who's culturally politically socially aware has a very fluid sense of identity um, and is as engaged with issues like sustainability and responsibility and conscientious consumption as they are with you know taking issue with gerrymandering or it is another great example what brendan's done with noah right and uh, he's always said every time i speak to him he says the same thing i'm more interested in the message than the product and the problem we've got in 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 a lot of british brands right now is there is no message that's where I, that's where my does that make sense sorry that feels like a rant um
1: to <laughs> so talk to me a bit about because this is a similar kind of thing the- so sustainability has obviously become within the last two years and before, but certainly in the last two, two years, has become the biggest buzzword. Mm. And I know that you feel that that's not perhaps the right buzzword. Yeah, and that responsibility is a is more important, and more salient.
0: Yes, yeah, I I, I absolutely I, I agree with that. Um, sustainability is the menswear equivalent of sustainability as a buzzword is bespoke. Everyone's appropriated it, it's overused, and it's very hard to prove that something is bespoke or not. And we all know that there is at least, there's probably half a dozen brands out there uh, in any major city at, at the moment, half a dozen little independent tailoring brands that are running things up in factories and calling it bespoke when it isn't. The problem with sustainability is every brand feels like they have to have some sort of performative, sustainable agenda or sustainable line. But so few brands are actually doing it in a way that's meaningful. Um, And, you know, you see things like, oh, we've done a whole line, you know, a a brand will come out and say, oh, we've done a whole line of shirts that are made with Econil, which is made from plastic harvested from the sea. But that corresponds to 0.2% of their annual sales is selling those recycled shirts and the other 90 percent of it is being run up in appalling factories with appalling esg status and being shipped all over the planet on cargo planes and it doesn't add up whereas the brands that i've come across over the last three years who are doing something meaningful they don't talk about sustainability they talk about responsibility and again, NOAA is a very good example. They really, really take it seriously. They vet their factories. They have a pretty serious sort of ESG program, even though it's a small company. Um, you know, it, it, all this stuff is is made that they put up a great Instagram story just last night about how they they deliberately um, that they. They limit the quantity of products they make, but not to restrict demand, but simply so that they don't overbuy. And they, did, they went on this big, long narrative across eight or nine story posts last night about how it's really important that the consumer shouldn't confuse um, not overbuying with restricting supply, which I thought was a really interesting kind of thing to be, to be thinking about and where that line sits and how brands can get that right. Um, but it's, it's you know, sustainability is a buzzword that brands feel like they have to jump on, whereas responsibility is is a holistic, for, for the brands that are being responsible, is a holistic way of approaching what they do. And also, if I think about we, that great conversation we had with Andreas at Bergenberg, um, one of the things that I loved that he said was, we are not a sustainable brand, you know, and I accept that. We make stuff that, realistically the world doesn't need a community wants but the world doesn't need more grey flannel trousers there's loads of places to go and get grey flannel trousers but if we are going to make grey flannel trousers and accept that actually you know, there is a community who wants our grey flannel trousers we're going to make sure that they are the best in terms of supply chain and craft and the people that we're supporting they are the best grey flannel trousers you will pick up from an ethical perspective on the planet And I really respect that. And I'd much rather shop with a brand like that than a brand that sort of has done a performative little capsule of sort of semi-sustainable stuff that becomes the front of a marketing campaign for 12
1: Mm. months. Or that's got a nice video playing as soon as you get to the homepage but doesn't really actually do anything more. Exactly. Right, so let's take a step away from menswear specifically. Right. Because one of the questions I was asked uh, to ask you was what else are you into? <laughs> and that may lead into what's next. Yeah. But let's start with what else are you
0: into first? So this, this, is, this is where, this is so interesting for me because as I think I've alluded to, and I know we've spoken about uh, off the microphone, is I really feel like I'm in the process of figuring out where I'm at as a journalist and what I want to authentically go after next. Um, but I'm trying to not to be drawn into that, that dangerous territory that we all get drawn into through social media, which is, oh, I have to be into this or I have to be into that. So if I really try and think about this for a minute, I'm really, really into old music. I, there's very little new music that does anything for me. And, I, and I, again, it's not cool to be into old music, but I've come to accept that I'm into old music. So I'm into a lot of mid-century jazz. I'm into a lot of Motown and Northern Soul. I'm into a lot of old reggae. Um, I am into modern music as well, obviously, but but I tend to find that I'm always interested in sort of pockets of modern stuff rather than... I mean, like, I've just driven back from Hampshire yesterday with my girlfriend and her sister. We were, The three of us went walking for the weekend. Uh, they played for three and a half hours pop music and I didn't have a I, I could not tell you a single track or artist in a three and a half hour drive I didn't know any of them and again as a 28 year old you feel like you should be across all this stuff but I haven't got a clue did you like any of it? no it's awful. Um, awful <laughs> so then it doesn't matter that you didn't know any of it because you a- wouldn't like it absolutely dreadful they're, 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 yeah well no I'm, I will sound like a, a, a 70 year old if we care so I'm going to gloss over that but so old music um, what else am I into? uh i'm very into i'm very into oh god now i now i all of a sudden sound very millennial i'm trying to think about other passion points i'm very into meditation mindfulness wellness i try and really look after myself like that um i'm not the healthiest person on the planet by any means but i do try and really look after myself um i am super into medieval history that's the other big passion point that was the passion point before clothes which I think has been alluded to at various different points over the years. But I studied, I, I studied English language and literature at university. But I, I started to specialise from my second term onwards in what they call course two, where you you study 700 AD to 1530 and nothing either side of it, which I absolutely loved. And I still, you know, I'm, I'm reading a huge 600 page book by a dutch historian about the history of the dukes of burgundy at the moment and i'm finding it fascinating so uh, history in general but ancient and medieval informs a lot of my interests
1: i'm looking forward to the moment where you combine both menswear and medieval history and to seeing how you're dressing then
0: i'm not going to say too much yet oh, but interesting i have a feature in mind for a new project that will do just that that's all i'm going to say okay. <laughs> uh I don't know if we'll get access to where I want to get access to yet, but we'll see. Um, what else is there? Um, food and drink, which is a very menswear thing, but I am such a sucker for... I don't like... And again, I've realised this fairly recently, having been on some, to some very nice dinners recently where the food has just not done it for me. I'm not into fussy food, but I am a massive foodie. But I would much rather have a big plate of deep-fried tripe and chips at St John than anything resembling Michelin star much rather do that so I've sort of accepted that I'm a true menswear guy and that I just want to spend the whole day eating large plates of heavy unsophisticated old-fashioned food Um I quite like my wine as I get a bit older I'm getting more into wine and I like classic cars but I'm yet to own a classic car but I would love I've got a classic car is on the bucket list there's still time yes there's still time indeed
1: Um okay well, that's a good list. Uh, so, specifically in terms of work, then, and podcasts to come, or projects to come, what, where are you pointing? Do you
0: think? Where? So, I'm. I really want to edit something. I've been freelance for four years. I've learned a lot. I want to edit something, but I, in I really, and I think I want to edit something in print but I don't know what that is yet. I am, we, James and I, our heads for the last two and a bit years have just been like, please let us wrap up the podcast. We've known for a while that we wanted to, to go to New York and do this season. And actually my brain has, I've almost not allowed myself to think about anything else until we've been able to go out on a high with the podcast, which I hope we've done. We really wanted to do that with season six. But now I'm just starting to think about what do I want to do for the next two to three years I don't think I want to do anything digital. I'm hating social media at the moment. I'm not convinced that anyone reads emails. And I don't really want to do a blog style website because you just get locked into having to resource it and tell stories for the sake of it and hammer it, for, uh, hammer it three times a week every week. And I'm just, I'm not in a place where I want to do that because I'm also doing quite a lot of brand work and I'm enjoying that and that's growing. And I want to see where that goes. So, but I do want to flex my muscles as an editor So that's all I'm going to say. I don't know whether that's for an established title or whether I launch my own little something. More on that to come, I think, in the next three, six months.
1: Okay. I see. Uh, Is there anything that I haven't
0: asked you about that you wished I had? Mm, I don't think so. I've really enjoyed this. It's been... um, No, I don't think so. It's been really... It's been really interesting, actually, to have a chance to vocalise a lot of the thoughts that just get jumbled up in your own mind over time. Um, And actually, it's encouraging to to realise in doing something like this that actually we have learned a lot over the last three years.
1: Has there been anybody that you've wanted to get but haven't been able
0: to for various reasons over the last six years? Loads. Loads. And actually, inevitably, when a listener drops us a message saying, oh, could you do so-and-so next season? Nine times out of ten, we've tried to get that person and haven't managed it. And that is either because they, they've been very nice about it and they've just said, look, I am not, I don't love podcasts or I'm not comfortable putting myself out there right now or I'm working on something I don't want to talk to you right now or we've just never heard back from them or they're too too big and busy and important we've tried for some ver- various big fish over the years and not got very far Emily Bodie would have loved to have sat down with I've written about her for a couple of different magazines would really love to have sat down with her um, huge admirer of her work I wear her stuff I think uh, the way she thinks is incredible but she was just she's just too big for, for a, an independent podcast like ours um, but then there have been guys over the years that I who, whose work I really admire and I love um, but who've just said, Do you know what, dude, I'm all right for now. I don't want to put myself out there that way or it's not quite right for me. Like um, uh, Michael Brown or Adam from Adrette, which is totally cool. Always very respectful of, of when someone says, I really appreciate it, but it's just not quite right. Um, I'm trying to think who else there is. There will always, with a project like this, there's always going to be someone who gets away. And the other thing that's, a shame is you don't. You also don't get round everyone necessarily that you would like to. If we'd had more time in New York there would have been another three people I would like to have spoken to but we, we've tried to be very focused and you get ten episodes and I, I always try and make sure that the season has a rhythm so uh, I don't want you know there are probably two or three tailors in New York who I would love to have just sat down with and had a chat but I didn't want in ten episodes to have three about tailoring so there are, there are always, and what I always say to those people is I'm not going anywhere. There will be an opportunity for me to write a story about you or for us to collaborate on something or for you to come up in another project. Um, so I hope there's no one who's, who's sore that they've not been on. That's the other thing about podcasts like this is there comes a point when you've spoken to most people in the community, right? We've not spoken to everyone, but we've covered mm. quite a lot of ground. Um, and again, most of the people that we haven't covered that, you, that would come to mind are people who have, uh, generally speaking, said no for one reason or another. So I, I do, I, what I didn't want to do with Handcut Radio is just keep flogging it for as long as we possibly could.
1: Is there one brand that you are excited about that you haven't mentioned? As a parting shot to your listeners... Is there one brand that you want to say, or tailor or or person in the media who you think is particularly cool?
0: I mean, there are a few people I, I've sort of got on my list that I want to speak to. I I don't know whether this will happen or not, uh, but I, I really want to speak to Jonathan Anderson at some point, because I he's done something super interesting in both the Autumn Winter 22 Loueve and JW Anderson collections which I don't think anyone seems to really have picked up on in a meaningful way that he has he's basically decided he's going to troll the metaverse with his collections. So he has put together these very sort of satirical dry ironic collections which both poke fun at how pointless the metaverse is. So he's got like these weird underwired t-shirt and short things that have like this cosmic feel and he's got loads of sort of spangly glittery sort of very 1990s cosmic clothes in the collections and he he, if you read all the show reviews the sort of interviews he was giving after the show was i just think all this stuff's kind of pointless and he's reflecting that So i'd love to at some point in the next six months have a have a chat with him uh for a magazine somewhere and just sort of say why you know it's so interesting how the fashion industry is responding to the metaverse and NFTs and all this sort of thing. 50% of the industry, like Palenciaga, have just gone hell for leather. This is going to be huge. This is it. And 50% have basically laughed in its face and said, this is nonsense. And I can't wait to see which way the wind blows. I think it's going to be fascinating. But I'd like to know what Jonathan, why Jonathan Anderson is a sceptic.
1: It, it is fascinating about how the luxury industry in general is launching itself toward the metaverse and the different aspects of how they're doing it. There's a, very, there's a very clear way that I think the metaverse is very useful to the luxury industry. And that uh, is with authenticity and provenance and being able to say this bottle of wine is actually this bottle of wine. Mm. This stamp is this, this watch is this um and continuing you know as it's sold and exchanged down the line that provenance can continue and continue to be endorsed and authenticated but there's a lot of other areas that are the jury is still out on
0: yeah we shall see curious indeed
1: well alex thank you very much for your openness and uh, honesty on that thank you for coming on your own podcast <laughs> it's been a pleasure to ask you some questions
0: oh paul thank you so much thank you for doing this i really really appreciated it and we we knew when we were going to do an episode like this we wanted a serious journo to uh come 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 and get involved so thank you very much for agreeing to do it and taking some time out it's a pleasure well stylish folk that's it this has been handcut radio Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and for making this project such a joy to work on over the past three years. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we have making this for you. For the last time, let me say a huge thank you to James Allen, the founder of Birch, the London-based creative agency and artist management firm that produces this podcast, which has supported me every step of the way. Thank you also to our indispensable sound editor and theme music composer, Joe Boyd. To hear more of his music or explore his digital artwork, you can follow him on social media at this Is Joe Boyd. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at alex__svetkovic to keep an eye on my work too. Thank you again, lovely people. That's us signing off.